0: Hello, I'm Rob Pershville, CEO and co-founder of RackN, And the May 20th Cloud 2030 discussion was about data modes and how we defend our data or how we should be sharing our data. Um, and this is really the interesting question. We keep coming back to this idea of we don't know how or why we should share data with people. It's very clear we should be sharing data, that there's economic benefit to us to do it but we haven't figured out how to do it. And that's the question that we're sort of struggling with in this whole conversation. If you have an answer after listening to this, come into Cloud 2030. We're going to be talking about data and data and more data throughout the month of June and probably into the summer. Um, and we have an agenda of, of data-related topics from pipeline security to uh, markets and privacy. So all important things at the 2030.cloud.
1: So,
2: do, do you guys, um, the more data savvy in the group, which is probably pretty much everybody else on the list here outside of me, um, do you see that question about, um, uh, you know, monetizing data being aligned, same, or completely different from, um, you know, of eventually multi-tenant um, access to uh, IoT-created data at the edge and the ability to, to provide some sort of either marketplace or, you know, accessibility to that data at the edge. I'd
3: and, say that's a special case, Mark. I mean, mean I, I, I this,
2: just, this is just a, 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 you know, a Mark stupid idea. Just from uh, probably six years ago, I was talking to Derek Collison uh, while we were both still at AppSera. And I suggested that the potential future for IoT at the edge was multi-tenancy not so much that you're multi-tenant that two or three people are logging into the data but that the the iot environments are there the results created by those iot environments whether it's the actual data or information generated could be shared with um, and uh, um, leveraged by others and the thinking behind that was that uh, once you've put IoT into a building, once you've put IoT into a roadway, into a mall, into a city, it doesn't seem to make sense for someone who needs to get 20% of the data that's associated with a smart city or 10% of the data that's associated with a smart city to put all that IoT in themselves just to get that data, rather figure out how to leverage what's being created yeah. on existing infrastructure.
3: So are you? is the question one of having once done that? monetizing it in such a way as to support its yeah and and what are the
2: you know what are even the limitations you know i mean some of the things you were talking about uh, tyler mentioned about masking um you know data governance in general the ability to anonymize the ability to quickly determine uh based on you know Mm -hmm. specific iot opportunities whether or not um the data is the way you read the data is only important to you so the fact that a hundred people read the data, it doesn't make any difference, right? So for instance, um, just a stupid example, uh, IOT about waves at the beach. The city needs to know because they're looking for sand erosion, right? And surfers want to know because they're looking for what the wave patterns are. They're up, dude. Right. <laughs> not- none of the data is private, but the data could be valuable for a hundred different reasons. Including... Yeah.
3: So your, I think your whole point there is... How do you, um, it, it's kind of, the, what's the universe of discourse or what's the, what's the, what's the charter or the end user, what's a value to them and what they want to pull out of it. Monetizing it is is one one issue. The whole notion of data meshing now where you have data as a product and it's, built on the products are are literally kind of late binding. You make sure that someone with the right set of authorizations and capable of expressing what it is they need out of the data store, you know, make, make clear to it. And then what comes back to them is appropriately masked, appropriately uh, authorized, and appropriately priced. Yeah, just,
2: and and so this, uh, and then I'll get off my high horse since there's obviously a lot of other people here wanting to talk subjects. But um, does that, uh, and again, this is wide open to everyone. Uh, This is just, I I have no idea. I'm just asking a question. Um, Does that lend itself to a business model of effectively creating a data marketplace?
4: Well, there's people yes. doing that. There's startups trying to do that, but that's, we're way off topic. I want to talk yeah. about data moats and, most specifically, <laughs> what is the analogous crocodile in the moat? See, uh, I don't, I don't think wait, wait,
0: wait, Hold on, because oh, I, I do want to respect the hand raising. Go ahead, Joan.
1: Thank you. Um, Pitney Bowes, the business model is to sell the data that they've been acquiring over a period of time to their customers. And they have created a marketplace and they are looking to bring it to the edge because each of the devices the stamp and postage machines that they're selling not only create and consume a lot of data but produce data that's now relevant to third-party marketers so if you happen to be a wpi uh, in the advertising game and a world leader you're now looking at Pitney Bowes as one of the sources of your third-party data supply to see who's doing advertising without it being part of your customer base, to now go and steal that new customer base, share that data. And they're doing it from the point of two views. One, customers who currently use their machines, and two, uh, from the service angle. If you have a problem with your machine, Uh, They have all the factory and manufacturing data that you can go and access so that you can troubleshoot your own problems, which saves them time in field service and cost, and there's a lot of business avenues around that. So that's one. The second one is, there are two large advertising companies, one of whom I can't name because of confidentiality, and that too is creating a marketplace where they're looking at how do they inject the third-party data into the edge and or cloud uh, transformational data that a large enterprise is putting out. Uh, also on the CPG side and their customer target is, and it stays in this chat room, uh, PNG. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. It's either you're producing the data or the data is being produced elsewhere and being injected in. And yes, it does hold for multi-tenant and SaaS and would be a very interesting marketplace because I heard GDPR before. So you have GDPR, you have Canada's charter, which is digital charter, and then whatever is happening in the US.
5: Nice. Dave? Is it my turn now? Um, Sorry. No, no, it's... I just want to make sure everyone has their chance. So first off, I, I don't think we're actually off topic um, uh, in the fact that, at least in my view of things, um, the strongest data moats are uh, owned by those that have things that generate data. Um, that That's where the start of the idea of the data moat is. is the data's gotta come from somewhere for you to have any data to put in the moat to begin with. And so if you own things that generate data, uh, you have some degree of a data moat one way or another. And I think it ties into uh, the question of things at the edge. Um, You know, Mark, you gave a couple of different examples. One example that you gave um, was about the waves on the beach. And I see that as a different case because that is public data. And public data that is done with with public government funding and is made to be open from the very beginning um, is not the same as something that might be in a mall or a building or something else where, um, one, you have building ownership. But in some of these business models, it's I own the sprinkler system, and I provide it to you as a service effectively. And so I don't directly give you access to that data. I give you access to a control panel that shows you small portions of that data from any number of things, and I may or may not have that in a data platform of some type. And generally, what happens with um, with things like this is uh, you have a uh, you have a uh, early entrance uh, early on in these markets. You keep things. Uh, proprietary, you lock them down, uh, you encrypt them, you make them unavailable, and you try to maintain that monopoly for as long as you can. And that is your data moat, is maintaining that monopoly. I'm the maker of the device, you use the device, I get to to take the data, I keep it encrypted, you don't have access to it, Um, and as things evolve, I may build a platform out of that, and you have access to the platform in a controlled fashion. And that's how I give you access to the data, um, whether that be that sprinkler system or it be, uh, you know, a, a tractor or anything else, um, or a, or a wind turbine. And so, for a period of time, that model works. It may be if I'm the only vendor in town, or maybe there are a few, and we effectively have a cartel where we all keep our data encrypted, we all have our platform, and that's that. Eventually someone comes up with the idea of opening their platform up um, and that begins to to give people access and or someone comes along and says, you know what? We're not going to encrypt our data either at the end or elsewhere. We're going to open that up. And that begins to create a a disruptive uh, shift in the market and it begins to create pressure on the companies that have kept their, uh, their data closed to open up. And so these are just market dynamics as the market matures and things go through a cycle, but effectively um, it all ties back to where is that market, you know, how are sprinkler systems uh, going, how many manufacturers are there and have any of them decided to open up or not as an example, um, and what is the demand on the outside and, and what contexts are the data being used in and how much control do I want to apply and am I dealing with GDPR or other regulatory, you know, the FAA has strict use, uh, strict requirements on the usage of data just like um, if you look at any of the other regulated uh, industries that have control, um, the FDA is another big one. They're super strict on control of what happens with data and kind of chain of what what things go through. Um, so uh, including you know uh, change management. So all of those things um, uh, are tied back to, in my view, that data mode and how you treat data and what you do with it. Uh, so I do think it's connected.
3: Um, I think there are two directions you can come at this, uh, at least two, in um, thinking about data modes. You can think about it from a business point of view, and I think Dave's just done a really good job of laying that out. You think about data or ownership of data or access to data, and it's been held up as kind of a kind of a magical business moat. It's a way in which businesses create a competitive advantage. When you talk to most of the data-oriented VCs around here. They talk about a data boat as something that you combine with network effects and it's promoted as kind of a defensible force in building up a software business. I'm gonna own the data and because I own more of it or have access to more of it than my competitors, I continue to maintain an advantage. so that is, that's coming at it from one point of view. I was, when we originally talked about this topic, I thought about it more as a matter of thinking about data as part of infrastructure. And what I was mostly interested in was thinking about the creation of a, of a wall, of a moat, of a A means of protecting data? That is, how do you address the safety of data, either that you own, that you access, or that you've been granted stewardship to? So, just to make sure, Rob, um, which of those kind of paths would you like to go down? And which would the group? (laughs) Like to go it's the
0: this is a group. This is a group discussion. I I, I actually like that we had two very different um, components to it. Um, I you know I I get excited about the sharing aspect of it, the data economy piece, um, because I feel like as long as we're treating these as data islands, right? If the moats are actually islands then we're we're never going to get out of the, the 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 vendors the siloed vendor situations we have and so I get I get more interested in how do we create data economies that encourage people building bridges across the moats um and looking for what the incentives are, is there missing technology for it? Um, I think that that to me, at one of the problems with our edge discussions is that we keep talking about the only way I can share data with you is if you transition it to my secured fortress in the cloud somewhere and then I hook it to your secured fortress in the cloud somewhere and then you know even if the devices are sitting next to each other they are basically data moats inside of a single edge edge data set, right? An edge data center right now looks like you know a whole bunch of heavily defended fortresses. Um, It doesn't look like a, you know, you're, you're not inside a single castle inside of an edge environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that personally, I get very excited about the, how do we get to the collaboration?
3: Um, Yeah. And I I think that there, there are a couple of ways of, of coming to that conversation. One of them is um, how do you, safely, I won't say share so much as how do you safely collaborate in your use of data and by safely, I mean, whoever has authority or responsibility for governance of the data, maintaining it as being mm, compliant with whatever jurisdiction you're operating in. Sharing the GDPR and so forth. How do you do this in a safe fashion? This whole notion of mm, yeah. secure computing or collaborative computing, where uh, you know the the magic environment is this homomorphic encryption. It's like, fine, I'll get to use the data without without seeing it. I get to ask the the questions, and so long as my questions are uh, capable of of being considered, uh, then fine. You get to you get to ask the question. The answer comes back, but you don't get access to anything you shouldn't be seeing. Um, that's cl- we we talked about that a little bit a couple right. of weeks ago, and I think that we're a lot closer technically to that than I thought we would be at this point. I thought we were going to be another 10 years before we even came close to the, being able to do that. And I think it's now a, much closer to reality. But when you start talking about um, monetizing it, making it available, here's, here, I guess here's my question. Uh, To you, Rob, is the objective here to create the bridges, the safe bridges across the moat? Or are we talking about someone who's got the data and has to consider data as an asset that they must defend? And therefore, they're much more concerned about building a moat, building a perimeter, you know, Protecting the data. The problem with the moat is, you get this idea of I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build a perimeter, and I think we all know that, you know, perimeter-based security is is kind of one of those things that uh, <laughs> nobody believes in anymore. Needs to die an ugly death.
0: Well, but I, and, and I don't I don't know that it's a perimeter problem. I actually think it's an economic problem. This is why I think Dave. Yeah, what what Dave has to say on this is really relevant because right now people think the economic value of their data is to protect it and keep it from getting getting stolen. Sorry, does my sound low?
3: Yeah, I actually, Sorry. just a quick point on that. Yeah, the economic the data has value as only so long as I can protect it and it doesn't get out. That's kind of, that that intent, that point of view, I think you're you're absolutely right, but it's because we don't have good examples and models of how to monetize data in a way that delivers data as a product, data as a service that's, um, that goes beyond this, you know, kind of the, the basic nato- nature of data, which is once it's out in the wild, you know, you can't put it back, can't put it back in the tube. You can't charge for it twice. Well, actually you can. There are lots of different ways of doing it.
0: I I also think that there's a concern that people don't know what their data is worth, right? There isn't a a market for helping them price it. There's not necessarily a market for helping them sell it. Well,
2: well, Um, Rob. Yeah. um, Maybe I'm missing um, uh, intent, uh, but should I think the a bigger part of the problem might be that people don't know the value of the data that they own in other people's hands. The data that they already own could be almost worthless to them in a day-to-day basis. And that's just a fact. 90% of the data that we store is literally worthless to us going forward. But any portion of that data could be vitally important to someone else who's stealing it from you. So that's that that method of measuring both sides of that value equation—the loss value versus the gain
1: value—has
2: got to be, um, and, and maybe that's implied. And I just wanted to. Make no,
0: sure. this is this is th- this to me is a, it's a very real question, and this to me is about as good a layup as I can give to Dave.
5: So. <laughs> I, I I think yeah, it is kind of a layup at this point. Um, it, there there is kind of uh, I think there is a big problem in that people uh, don't understand as uh, as was said earlier the value of their data or um, the fact that it's valuable um, to others and what that value could be and how they might go about monetizing that value from other parties besides themselves Um, which is kind of what my, what my book I've been talking about, uh, uh one of the things that, uh, that it attempts to tackle, um, which I'm finally getting close on, on wrapping up. So, uh, okay. excited about that. Um, the, uh, I think the, the big thing is understanding that, uh, the utility to others is, uh, depends on who those others are. If it's a hacker or an attacker, um, the data has use. Um, it's, it, it depends on what their motives or what their uh, what their goals are. Uh, it, you know, you could look at ransomware and, and the idea of encrypting your database and, and cutting you off from your own data. Um, the value of doing that is whatever you're willing to pay for the ransom. Um, a million, five million, $20 million to get, get the decryption keys. And now we're seeing where, they're, where uh, you get the decryption keys and you find out that it was actually encrypted twice. So you decrypted it, but now you need oh. to decrypt it yet again. Um, it, that's one aspect. There's also, you know, if we use, um, uh, if we use data about uh, one of my favorite examples is weather data, which has incredible utility across so many different things. And so uh, I might get utility by letting, uh, letting everyone know what the weather is, and I might make some money in that in that way. But there's also value in dealing with logistics and travel. There's value in dealing with uh, uh, sentiment and what people are going to do. So am I more likely to go to the park or go to the movies, depending on what the weather is outside? If it's storming down rain, I'm probably more likely to go to the movies. If it's beautiful and sunny out, I'm probably more likely to go to the park. Uh, having that, having that data, having the forecasted data, um, gives me the ability to uh, to make better predictions, to do all sorts of different things. So it's the it's the use or the context of use of that data. Um, But the value of the data is the aggregate of all of those uses and all of those risks. Uh, That's really where the value comes from. And so deciding how to secure, protect, and deal with that would be a function of looking at all of those things, Um, not just looking at, oh, I've got this bit of data and I happen to use it for X, so that's what it's worth. That's not what it's worth. That's what it's worth in that context to you.
0: How did how does somebody? Mark, you have your hand up, so I'll. Uh, Rich and Tyler both had up before I did. Oh, okay. Sorry, I don't see. You. I have my screen set up, so I don't see him.
5: I'll defer my question. Wow, you blocked them out, man.
4: Yeah. So, I just... um, <laughs> uh, what I wanted to add to that was when when you were talking about what the value is to to who it is. I'd like to introduce a concept of a data economy, because that's really what we're talking about here. Is you know, let's look at economic goods in a standard economic model, right? You you have mechanisms in place to facilitate transactions. You've got mechanisms in place to be able to provide valuations of economic goods. So if you look at like real estate, for example, um, it, it, you know people take advantage of um, special knowledge that the uses of real, uh, of a piece of property are different you know if you're going to sell a piece of undeveloped land uh you may be looking at it through the lens of hey i could put three houses on here whereas a commercial developer may be looking at an office park and the value of the land is completely different because the developer has the ability to get the zoning change so that the value of that changes So like, it's like that with data though, right? You know, the the way that you're going to use it, um, the way that you're gonna value it, the way that you're going to transact it, all of these things don't really exist yet in the data economy except in special cases. And a special case of that, in my view, would be like the weather channel. Everybody's familiar with the the web app or the, the, the mobile app, but a lot of people don't realize that they actually have industry-specific vertical uh, businesses for transportation for agriculture for uh, half a dozen other industries and they have specialized apis that are pulling data from the same data set and repackaging it specific to those different industries so i i would say that their property—that's the best example I can think of of a company that knows how to monetize their data, right? Is the weather company, but we don't have—we don't have this whole economy where we can handle all different data in all different contexts.
5: But it's the, the differences. That's really again, we're talking about what my book's about. But to make one point with your real estate example, um, the difference is when you do development on that property you have used up that property's use. In other words, you can't can't magically, if I build a building and it's for whatever purpose, that is the purpose that it's consumed. Whereas data, I can use it for 75 different purposes because it's non-rivalrous. So real estate is a rivalrous example, and it's harder to look at non-rivalrous things in in the world of economics. They're not as many. Um, there are plenty of rivalrous examples. Not as many non-rivalrous examples. I mean, I maybe a better example automotive.
4: would be the, the automotive industry. You've got a depreciating asset that can be resold and repurposed.
5: You you can, but again, it's limited. Um, yeah. you, know, you can repurpose it. Maybe you can repurpose it once, but you're not going. To, you can't have limitless repurposings of an automobile. Um, it, it's yeah. it's it, it, it's. That's one of the things that makes data fairly special, but you do end up with all of the same laws. You have supply and demand. Uh, The difference is, for example, what network effects um, can do with data versus what network effects can do with other products. And I'll
4: step back. I I guess my point was to the uh, element of the, the, the fact that the economic structures are not as mature with data monetization as they are in other elements of the economy. And to the extent that we can mature those structures, we'll be able to be much more effective in monetizing data overall.
5: 100%
1: agree. I have a question with regard to remonetizing vehicle data, because the way the cars are being designed now, um, first of all, there is a standard for cybersecurity within the vehicle and the data that it's transmitting uh, that the automotive industry is working with. But if I think about it, the telemetry data could be repurposed in multiple ways to multiple industries, not only to the supply chain, but to the smart city, to the uh, oil and gas industry, to sure. battery insurance, et cetera. It's, yeah. So how is that not, um, I it may be rivalrous, but it's also multi-use, and companies are already doing this, or looking the, the, to do it.
5: The data is, is non-rivalrous. The vehicle itself is is a rivalrous thing economically. So, okay. the, so anything that, rivalrous resources are anything that you effectively use and you can't just Use again. So, a great example is oil. Um, People say that data is the new oil. Well, once you get a barrel of crude oil out of the ground, you extract it, and then it's not all that useful as a barrel of oil. You need to refine the barrel of oil into plastics and gasoline or whatever other um, uh, petrochemical products you decide to refine out of it. Once you've done that, you can't magically get your barrel of oil back. Whereas a non rivalrous resource like data, I can use it again and again and again and again and it never gets used up, it's it's still there. I can give you a copy, I can take a copy, everyone in the world can have a copy of it and it's not used up or depleted. Um, so that's why it's a non rivalrous resource and that's really, um, One of the things that makes data different, and it's why I don't think the economic model is as mature, is because it's harder for people to think about things economically that don't get used up, because nearly everything that we deal with gets used up.
1: So expiry is not considered a criteria of used up.
5: It's not because, uh, just because it expired, um, uh, one, it doesn't guarantee that there are no copies in existence of that unless you've been very careful, okay. et cetera. Um, and so uh, you, uh, and you can see data that gets resurrected. People, In fact, a great example, think about, this is simple, but think about tweets. Think about these people that made tweets a decade ago and believed that it was long gone and their views turn out to not be so popular a decade later that may have been accepted a decade ago and they've come back to haunt them and they believe that they had effectively expired. And now there are services that you can pay that will go in and ensure that your tweets are deleted after an amount of time, but they're not really deleted. They're still archived all over the place and just because they're deleted from the feed doesn't mean they're truly gone. Um, So again, why data is very
1: different. So historical data, no matter how much it's aged, still has relevance and therefore value.
5: It does. In my, what, in, my in my studies, um, all data has a value curve. Um, the value curve, uh, I won't say never, but in, in what I've seen yet so far, it doesn't really go to zero. It might be one, one gazillionth of a cent in value, but there's some value in that data. Someone could potentially find a new contextual use for that value for figuring out a trend or solving some other problem, in which case that data still does have value.
1: Got it.
3: Thanks. Actually, we have some good examples of exactly that happening. A lot of data that's been considered data exhaust has been suddenly disinterred and brought back out of the archives because it's now being used tagged and used as training for machine learning so data which had in the past a time value to Tyler's point in the in the uh, in the chat yes the data can can change in value over time. But again, this comes back to its utilization and its use. When suddenly I can make use of this historical data to do better projections, I can start to analyze it for the purpose of getting, um, you know, feature engineering on a data on a machine learning data set. Suddenly, that that archive, which was, you know as Dave said, one gazillionth of a cent um, suddenly has a lot more uh, value. Let me also talk about the forms of business by which people monetize data. And yes, it is non-rivalrous, but what happens is um, there are ways in which companies monetize data as a club good in other words i have access or i have control of access to the data so i'm i'm going to pay an entry fee i'm gonna you you have to you have to pay me a ticket to to listen to it to watch it to make use of it so forth um doesn't mean you couldn't copy it, not necessarily. They're, everybody's tried to figure out a way of doing that and hasn't been successful. But the point here is, while it still has high value, there are companies done in Bradstreet uh, is a good example. Um, most of the financial. Um, the financial information, financial data companies are basically taking non rivalrous good, but they are packaging it up, they're getting and you get access to it only if you pay the freight and the value is the value of it at a particular point in time. So you're, gen, you're, you're basing the, the monetization and the business model on the freshness of the data, not its existence.
5: Well, and I think that's I think that's where um, it, the the freshness of the data affects things. In that, um, if you look at if you look at data stored um, over time, generally, if we just kept the data and we didn't add any new data, there was no no activity to the data at all over time the value curve of that data set would slowly fall, wouldn't go to zero, but it would slowly go into decline. But if you're constantly adding new data, your goal is to have it constantly increase over time or at a minimum to stay flat and not go down over time by adding additional data. So uh, I think that's, I think that's key. If you can find new context, you can make leaps in that value of your data as you find new contexts um, for the use of it. And that's really what companies ideally would be doing is looking at the economics of their data and figuring out what are those contexts that can create those curves upward in that value um, either immediately or even over time. but I don't think that's happening a lot right now because the market, as Tyler said, is, uh, or the, the view of the economics of data is fairly immature. Uh, we're,
4: we're like in the pre-stock market period of capitalism, right, where people are trading stocks point to point. There's no exchange.
5: That's right.
1: So does that imply then that the, um, uh, the queen will be the broker? Who figures out how to make the market happen in a more effective way than point to point? The channel controller, if you will.
5: I think that, or is it
1: the per, or is it the person who figures out all the various contexts that the data can be used in?
5: I think that's the, I think the the value is when you can figure out all of those contexts, or if you have a way of discovering those new contexts, um, which is something I've something I've. Oh working on is how do you discover the use of the new contexts for the use of the data. Um, if you, I have a methodology of how to do it. I'm not saying it's the best or it's the universal answer, but I've come up with a methodology of how you would approach that to figure out uh, contextual uses of, of data that you already have. Um, but I think the key is, figuring out that the maximum number of contexts that will get you the maximum amount of value for the lowest cost incurred. Uh, That's the the ideal scenario um, with this. There are not a lot of companies that have done it, but there are companies that do this. There are banks do this, credit bureaus do this, the weather company, which was mentioned, which is another great example These companies have been doing this for quite a long time, quite successfully.
0: Yeah. I I have a past as prologue question observation for you in in that sense. Because I'm I'm thinking through, based on what you're saying, about times we've seen this happen in the past. Like we entered a time like 10 years ago where we had this API economy, right? That was widely predicted. The cloud has enabled this API economy. Everybody uses REST APIs, and you can wire things together because now we've got pretty consistent APIs as a way to share information. So it, what that feels a lot like what you're describing, but um, more centralized. And I'm, I'm trying to think if, if the, right. And it revolutionized the market. The fact that we have so much SaaS business today as all these silos and independently operated entities, instead of having to, you know, have internal data lakes where I'm dumping things into a controlled system and then sharing it was part of that API economy explosion. Is there something that could make that happen in an individual basis or change the dynamics?
5: The API economy in my view is the enabler of us to be able to have all of these interesting platform business models that that, uh, have begun to evolve. There are a lot of factors. There's the API economy. There's the fact that everyone has a supercomputer with them um, Mm -hmm. nearly all the time. There's the fact that, uh, that the speed of communications networks has increased as well as the overall coverage has increased and we're seeing nothing but trends in all of those things continuing. And our hunger for data remains unquenched. We hunger for more data all of the time and all of those things facilitate that you have to have a um, both a macro and a microeconomics view of, of data because your business, whether you're, you know, whether you're making uh, you know breakfast for people or you're operating an airline or anything else, is starting to become very much tied to data. And so um, understanding that facet economically of your business becomes a critical thing um, in order for you to maximize your your profits, minimize your risks and losses. Um, it's just not a lot of not a lot of energy has been expended in really fully understanding that. Just like early on with the API economy, we had notions of what was going to happen with apis, but really things weren't all figured out. and then eventually we set into, um, you know, established ways that things were going to happen. We ended up with you know um, many different approaches, some winning out and some disappearing. Um, all uh, all because we we needed to get to this scale. We needed to to free up and and leverage these capabilities. And that's that's what will happen with data. Yeah. The same thing. Some,
0: with- and some of it some of it to me was also the protocol. Right. Because, right, we, we we started with what RPC and uh, DDE, right? Uh, you know, what moved into SOAP. As you say, SOAP. SOAP, right? O, 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 ODBC. Like, nobody even talks about some of these these old data format protocols. Corva. Finally moved in, into REST. Corva, that's the one I was, I was trying. Yes. Yay, Corva. I'm
2: going to have nightmares.
0: Um, uh, writing all the X dot whatever.
2: I kept saying Corba. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um,
0: I can see a Twitter thread on on this giving everybody nightmares. Um but yeah, I I don't feel like we've done a good job on the 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 share, like it's it'll almost certainly be restful, but I feel like there's something more here that's that's missing. Um,
1: it could be objects. I, I'm, I'm no, getting, yeah. getting this, you know, way old ORM blob in my brain, <laughs> and, and saying to myself that, well, if you sort of go down that road, it does make sense because you know, the more I listen to this, the more I hear about the aggregation of data because every new context or any data addition, amendment, appending, whatever excuse me, is, um, <coughs> pardon me, is spinning the wheel more and more and more so that it's beginning to look like a thread, you know, like a like a, a spool of thread. Where does it end? It, it,
5: well, it, I, I think it could be. I, I realize that you can have uh, bad actors that introduce bad data, um, whether accidentally or on purpose, that actually, Cause that proverbial thread to to fray or weaken, um, just like you can have all sorts of uh, uh, all sorts of kind of um, uh, negative or bad data that gets introduced. You can have devices that malfunction, all sorts of other things that can uh, that can corrupt non curated data. Yeah, it gets to the that gets to the whole notion of.
3: Um, protections how do you keep how do you keep quality and safe safety involved um we haven't no one's raised the issue of ownership there's one of the issue about issues about data is um is there really such a thing as ownership and what does that mean is there more is it more an issue of stewardship you're granted Certain kinds of rights to it or privileges, but along with that come certain kinds of obligations. That feeds into the whole context that we're we're discussing. Um, I I would venture to guess here that um, along the question that well, actually, I wanted to ask Rob to be a little more specific about what you meant by something missing from the APIs or from the API-like model? Are we talking about something technical? Are we talking about something (laughs) operational? I think they're all, in this case, they're all
0: linked together. My my thought, and, and we're out of time, so I wanna make sure Mark gets, Mark, if you can close us out. On, your, on final points. Um, sure. I'll answer Rich's question really briefly because it's a placeholder, right, for, for, for future. I actually would think that part of the answer is a stream in streams and get James, you know, James Arcard in here and, and do some streams discussion because rest, the REST APIs are really consumption poll oriented. Um, and I think we, we got far enough in this conversation to think about the economics and how the economics need to change and that, to me, is the place to start on how that gets driven into what the technology set looks like, um, because if the it's not going to be a technology first thing, it's got to be, you know, the economics of it. And I think there's a couple of technologies that are prime
2: for this. Um, but Mark, did you want to uh, close this I, out? I don't know whether this is a good closing comment or not, but. Um, this sort of relates to, uh, the, the security blog I published a couple of months ago, uh, uh, not being a security expert coming from the perspective of looking, looking at the war from a, from an armchair standpoint and trying to make decisions about how the war should have been fought or could be fought better. And one of the, uh, I actually had three points, one of which Rich covered. Thank you very much. It was good. Um, uh, but the one I'm just going to stick with is is fundamentally it seems that the the root cause of our problems associated with data is related to two things one of them is most corporations don't have a a really good strategic plan for what to do with the information and data that their company owns or creates or manages that's true if they create one they're not able to maintain it and two we have a, a distinct inability today to look at a set of data and actually evaluate in, in, with 100% certainty that, oh yeah, this block of 200 gigs of data is not only not useful itself as a discrete set of data, but will never be useful combined with any of our other data or somebody else's data, right? And with those two problems, everything else we do it's just like moving stuff around.
3: I've so you're saying it makes, it all, makes us all data hoarders?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I made a joke earlier, but it's not a joke because I tried it in four different organizations. It costs more to get rid of your data than it does to just maintain the stuff. And so, ironically, the value of your data is how much it would cost to delete it versus keep it. In in many cases,
5: um, but um, that's a technology challenge right now. In it that. is, but because it's the-
2: it is, but it's also it, it's. Sorry, what's that?
5: We went though, realize if you go back in time to the reason databases exist is to address that very problem. When resources were scarce, you had to be very careful about what data you put in, right. how you put it in, the data you pulled out, the manner you pulled it out. Um, now, because resources are abundant, um, and aerial density of storage continues to go up uh, unabated. Right. Um, there's why would I delete it? Why would I delete this? Right. It's, it, it, as well, you said, it costs could, far could. more for me to delete Right. You spent
2: five minutes days. deleting a thousand emails and you didn't, and it costs more to, to your time than anybody saved on that space. Right. That's right. That's right. Anyway, good discussion, guys. Fascinating. You Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to another cloud 2030 podcast. Um, this data series is going to keep going. Join us at the 2030.cloud. Come in and have bring your opinions. This is a really important topic and the economics of the future are going to be determined by how we share this type of data. Uh, the API economy transformed our industry and the data economy as we figure out how to share data will be even more disruptive. And I want you to be on the winning side. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.